It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We are told that when someone goes to buy a house, there are three things that primarily determine the price of a house. And those are location, location, location. In a similar way, when we study the Bible, there are three key things that we have to keep in mind when we're looking at a passage. And it's the context, the context, oh, and the context. (laughs) This week, we've had students here on campus and we've been walking through how to study the Bible. And I've been talking about the importance of context. So I thought it'd be fun that in today's Daily Thunder, we're going to look at a passage and see the importance of how context plays into the meaning of that passage. Now, before we dive into that, I just want to remind you that we have a one-week program coming up this November 7th through the 13th. If you're looking for some great in-depth discipleship training, well, then I would encourage you to check out this week-long program. Also know that we've opened up next summer's five-week program for those who have a little bit of longer time and desire to go even deeper. You can find out more information about that week-long or next summer's five-week program by going to ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now, let's jump into today's Daily Thunder as we look at the importance of context in Bible study from the book of Mark. So for those who are watching the live stream or the listen to the audio, uh, we have students here all this week for the uh, week-long and the five-week program, which is exciting. All right, good morning. And uh, <clears throat> uh, this week we've been talking about saturation Bible study and just the importance of being in the Word. And, and uh, one of the things that we talked about, just as a reminder for, for all of us, uh, a couple nights ago, was this idea that in Bible study, uh, there are three things that are probably most important in terms of understanding a passage. And one of those things would be context. Another would be context. And a third one could be context. Oh, see, you guys are listening. Well done. Whoo, I'm impressed. Uh, so what I wanted to do, I just thought it would kind of be fun for today's Daily Thunder to uh, kind of show you how context gives insight or illumination into a passage. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4. Uh, in chapter 5, and I want you to see this. I I really want you just to walk through a thought process with me, and I want to talk about the passage. But again, I I want you to kind of see this in two two lenses. One, I I want us to look at the Word, obviously, and and just let God illuminate His truth in the Word and let the Word press us and, and change us. But I also want you to think of it in terms of Bible study and the fact that when we study, context is important. And again, we walked through the four questions for Bible study, and, <clears throat> and uh, we're not going to practically do that this morning, but I just want to walk through the passage, and as we walk through the passage, I just want you to keep the Bible study thing in the back of your mind. Make sense? Awesome. All right, let's dive in. Uh, in Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus has just started his ministry. Things are just moving like crazy, and of course, the book of Mark is a as an action-adventure kind of a writing style, Mark is just going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing immediately, immediately, and then, and then, and then, and Jesus is popping in and, in and out all over the place, <clears throat> which is exciting. And uh, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, That same day when evening came, Jesus said to them, speaking to the disciples, Let us cross over to the other side, speaking of the Sea of Galilee. Now, again, if you're doing good Bible study, you would say, oh, I probably need to learn some things about the Sea of Galilee if I'm 
understand what Jesus means by saying, hey, let's cross to the other side. So I brought a picture. Oh, look. <clears throat> and all those listening to the audio podcast are like, oh, no. <clears throat> uh, so the Sea of Galilee, it's about 16 miles long, nine miles wide at the, at the widest point. It's kind of like an upside-down Michigan, right? Uh, for all those, right, you know. And <clears throat> at its deepest point in the middle of the sea, it's about 150 feet deep. So it's a good-sized lake. Now, I, I don't know what you've ever imagined with the Sea of Galilee, but every, every TV or movie I've ever seen of Jesus, where he goes to the Sea of Galilee, it makes it look like one of the Great Lakes. Right? You can never see the other side. It's, this, it's just like he's, he's on this ocean. That's not this. Has anybody ever been to the Sea of Galilee? We got one. Well done, bud. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is interesting. It, it is surrounded by cliffs on all the sides, and no matter where you stand on the Sea of Galilee, you can see all around the Sea of Galilee. And, and yes, you know, it's 16 by 9 miles, but it, relatively speaking, it is a small body of water. We still call it a sea, but really it's a lake. It's a big lake. Is that, is that a fair assumption for everyone? All right. <clears throat> now, you need to learn or know a few things about the Sea of Galilee in order to understand specifically the passage we are going to be looking at today. Again, I, I told you the other night that when I was growing up, I grew up with a lot of uh, flannel board theology, and I learned a lot of my, my understanding from Sunday school flannel board. Again, that's not bad, <clears throat> but for whatever reason, whatever I had in my mind for the Sea of Galilee, I found out to be pretty much wrong. I presumed that the Sea of Galilee, Galilee being in Israel would have been surrounded by towns full of Israelites. That would have made sense to me. That, that Jews would have lived all around the Sea of Galilee. That, that's actually not true. Isn't that interesting? And so when you look at this picture here, you'll probably notice some, some names that you've seen before, right? Uh, like Capernaum, up there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was the headquarters of the ministry of Jesus for the three years that he was ministering. So every time he came up back north to the Galilee area, right, he, he lived in Capernaum. This is where Peter's um, mother-in-law's house was, and, and, and this is where he just kind of spent most of his ministry and miracles. Most of the teaching happened right around that little town called Capernaum. Sermon on the Mount happened not that far from there. I mean, I mean all this stuff was happening around the Capernaum thing. Right? He went into the synagogue of Capernaum, we're told. Right? And of course, and there was a demon-possessed man. And, and, and there's all these healings that happen in the town of Capernaum. And if you want a fun study to do, by the way, figure out why he chose Capernaum. It's actually a profound thought when you actually get into it. And there's a reason, in my mind, that Jesus chose Capernaum out of all the other places. But I'll leave that for you to figure out. Uh, we have Chorazin and Bethsaida and Gennesaret and Magdala. So Mary of Magdala is, is from there on the, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now what's interesting is when you begin to look at the lay of the Sea of Galilee, what you'll notice is that in the top part of the Sea of Galilee, so this section here upwards, right, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee was all the towns that had the good Jewish men and women. So if you were a good Jew, you lived on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, on the western side, right around here, right below Magdala, in this town called Tiberias, this is where all the Hellenistic Jews lived. 
Uh, the word Hellenistic comes from that term when Alexander the Great comes in and he starts conquering the world and he starts bringing Greek culture and Greek language and Greek thought. And so as it's, as it's coming and overtaking the world, here's, <clears throat> here's Alexander and, and this Greek culture influencing the world. We call that Hellenism. And so what you had there, specifically in the town of Tiberias, but in that western shore area, you had all these Jews who, yes, were Jews by technicality. They were born Jews, but they had the heart of a Greek. In other words, they were influenced by the paganism and the, the culture, and they were living as if they were Roman, or they were living as if they were Greek, even though they were Jews. So there's a significant difference between those two groups, right? So the good Jews lived on the northern shore. The paganistic kind of Jews lived on the western shore, and they rarely would interact. Now, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, all along here, this was part of the region known, and you probably have heard the term, it's part of the Decapolis. The Decapolis in, in Jesus' day was a city of 10 towns. They were Roman. They were pagan. They were not, not, not Jewish. They were not Jewish. So you've got you to think this through. On the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, you had the Jews. On the western side, you had the pagan Jews, the, the, you know, the ones who were living according to the worldly culture. And then on the eastern shore, you had these Romans. They were pure pagans. They had no interest in the Jews. So as a good Jew who lived on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, there is absolutely, positively no reason why I would go to other parts of the lake. There's none whatsoever. In fact, if you look at how they used to fish, the best fishing on the Sea of Galilee is right up here on the very tippity top of the Sea of Galilee in the northern shore. And it's because what's happening is Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in Israel, is way up here. And the snows are melting and it travels down the Jordan River. Here's the Jordan River. It flows, hits here, kind of breaks into some little, whatever that's called, from whatever. I'm not a river person, obviously. But, you know, like it breaks off to some streams, tributaries, whatever those are things. And there's all these fish hatcheries, like all the fish love to spawn right here. So when you're fishing, you're not going to go fish in the middle of the lake. There aren't, I mean, there's probably fish in the middle of the lake, but that's not where you find fish in the, on, on the Sea of Galilee. So a Jew who's going to fish would only ever go out maybe 100 meters. I mean, most of the fishing is between one and 300 feet off the shore. It's not that far. And isn't it interesting, and this will start making some other stories make sense to you, but when they would fish, here they are on their boat, they would always take their nets and they would always throw it to one side of the boat. Why? Because they're throwing toward the shore and pulling it in. So when Jesus comes to Peter and says, hey, did you catch anything? And Peter goes, nope. Jesus, hey, throw your net on the other side. Peter had to have been thinking, who are you? Have you ever fished on the Sea of Galilee? You don't take a net and you don't throw it that way. Why? There are no fish that way. So there's no reason you would throw your net that way. But probably just to appease Jesus, he goes, sure, I'll do it. Fine, whatever. See, look, right? <laughs> <You know? clears throat> 
Isn't that interesting? Now, something else you got to keep in mind, which is going to help you with our story here, is the fact that to a Jew, water was symbolic of chaos. It all comes from the Genesis 1, 1 thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, but it was chaotic. And so to a good Jew, the water was symbolic of chaos. The water was symbolic of the entrance to the abyss. In other words, if, you're, if you died and you had to go to Sheol, you had to go there somehow. How did you get there? Likely through the waters. Why? Because it was chaos. So as a good fisherman, the likelihood is none of them knew how to swim. None of them likely ever went down to the Dead Sea and floated. And by the way, if you ever get to go to Israel, please go down to the Dead Sea and float. It is hilarious. You can't help but laugh. It is. You just, you just start giggling, chuckling. Guys, don't giggle. So you, you start to chuckle, right? And you, you just, you just kind of kick your feet out and just, whoomp, and it feels like you're on an inner tube. It, it, is, like, it is the coolest experience. But I, I'm almost guaranteed that no Jew just went down there and did that. Why? Because it was water. Now, in modern Israel, you know, you have the holidays and you have the weekends and Sabbath and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of people who will drive up to the Sea of Galilee and they'll go, they'll go swimming, you know, they'll kind of do that kind of thing. But back in his day, back, at, back in the day we're talking about, back in the New Testament era, no, the likelihood is no one knew how to swim. No one wanted to know how to swim. Why would you want to go swim in the place that led to death? Why would you want to go swim in the place of chaos? Why would you? And so as a fisherman, you had a boat. But let's not go that far off, this, off the shore. Why? Because if something happens, is this making sense to you? So you've got to understand that in the mind of the disciples, there's absolutely positively no reason why you'd ever go to the other side of the lake. Why? Well, one, you'd have to traverse through that thing, which is chaos. Two, there's nothing over there except pagans. And we don't hang, as good Jews, we don't hang out with the pagans. Does this make any sense? All right, so look at the passage, Mark chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 35. Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus and the disciples are up near Capernaum, so they're up on this northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, let us cross to the other side. Now, they know that he's the Messiah, or at least at this point they're, they're fairly confident that he is. And so they trust him, but my guess is the disciples kind of looked at each other and like, uh, What? Where on earth are we going? So when they sent the crowd away, verse 36, they took him in a boat just as he was. And there were also other little boats with him. Now, if you ever get to go to Israel, they have a, they, they've actually found in archaeological research, uh, years ago, the Sea of Galilee had a, had a drought, uh, and it, it went down quite a bit. And these guys were digging in the mud to find old treasures and they happen across a piece of a boat. I'm like, that's interesting. And thinking it might be worth some money, they started digging around. They found out that it was a full-size boat from the first century that got sucked in the mud and was therefore perfectly preserved. And so all these archaeologists came over, and they, I mean, they were taking great care because you would touch the wood and it would just disintegrate. And so they, they put all this foam and all this kind of stuff, and they, they float, this is the coolest thought, they floated this boat out. So they, they put all this foam around it, they filled it up with water, they raised the boat out of the mud, and then they floated the boat for the first time in 2,000 years across the Sea of Galilee so they could actually go and actually preserve it. 
And now the boat is available for you to look at. So you can actually go and actually see this boat that they found, which is a first century fishing boat from the time of Jesus. It is a cool thought. Now, I don't know what you have in your mind for a fishing boat, but these fishing boats were not that big. I mean, it's probably the size of, you know, like from, from that stairs to this stairs, you know, and it's probably, you know, you know, five, six feet wide or so. And you could probably fit, you know, a good seven, eight guys in there if you're going to cram it. But if you're fishing, you just have a couple of guys. We're not talking massive boats. But here's a whole bunch of boats, and Jesus is, is in one of them, and they're going to make their way across the lake. Now, again, they don't do this thing. Now, what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee, it is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. So it's freshwater. It is in the lowest elevation. It's a few hundred feet below sea level. And what's interesting is because of the way the cliffs come across and they just drop right down into the sea, you have these windstorms in Israel where the wind will come that comes down the cliff and it hits that water and it churns up the water. And you, you can get these crazy storms on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, every year there's still a a couple of people who die on the Sea of Galilee because of the storms. And what's interesting about what I've been told is that fresh water weighs more than salt water. So if you're in a storm and fresh water hits your boat, it actually hits heavier and harder than if you were in like the ocean where, where there's salt water. Interesting. So here they are. They're making their way across the lake with these little boats. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves splashed into the boat. Now, I know that they're fishermen, and I know they've spent their entire life on the lake, but this is scary. Why? Because you are in the middle of chaos, experiencing chaos of a storm, and that chaos is now getting into your boat, and it's nighttime. So we have problems. We can't see. Little boats are rocking like crazy. Water's getting into the boat. Here we are in the middle of the lake which is the entrance to Sheol. <laughs> which means when we die, we don't have that far to go. <laughs> right? That, that's the mindset of the disciple. So listen to this. Verse 38. Jesus was in the stern asleep on a pillow. Excuse me? Yeah, he was just on this waterbed, and he was just enjoying his just, you know, his, he was just enjoying this. And he wasn't waking up. But all the disciples are screaming and yelling and hooping and hollering. So it says, they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we're about to die? Teacher, we're going under. We're right above Sheol. We are going down. And you're going to get sucked down there too if you don't help us. That's not word for word, but that's just. (laughs) So look at verse 39. Jesus says, it says, he arose, he rebuked the wind. Isn't it interesting he didn't talk to the wind? He actually rebuked it. But what did he say? He said, peace, be still. It's like he just walked up and just went, shh. And all this chaos, in the place of chaos, ceased to be chaos. That's phenomenal. And it says that the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Verse 40, then he said to the disciples, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared greatly and said to one another, what kind of man is he? That even the wind and the sea obey him. 
So Jesus is proving his authority and his power over the physical realm. Make sense? Jesus has authority over the physical realm. Please nod your heads. Jesus has authority and power over the physical. That's great news. Now, they get to the shore. And where they happen to be is right, where, right in this area where it says hippos. So <clears throat> they're right here on the shore. Uh, I love this area. Uh, hippos was this ancient town. That they were known for their horses. And uh, it was a very secular town. It was one of the cities in the Decapolis. And it's really neat if, if you ever decided to join us for our Ellerslie Israel tours, our Bible study tours. Uh, one, the place that we stay in the northern part of Israel is on the Sea of Galilee right below Hippos. And really, the, the little resort that we stay at, which sounds better than it is, it's just a little hotel thing, <laughs> but the little Israeli resort we stay at, the shore of, the, of this hotel is where this story took place. And one of my favorite things to do is to take the group down to the shore and say, let's, I want you to see this passage. Because it is profound when you're standing in the spot where this is happening. That was my bait for getting you to come. Okay. <laughs> So here they are, they're on the shore. Now imagine this, you're, you're, a good, you're a good Jew. You've likely never been over here. You just experienced chaos. You just crossed the sea, which you probably have never have done. Now, they, you, you gotta understand, they, they do, uh, Nazareth is over here, and so they'll walk back and forth, they come down. I mean, they're moving around the Sea of Galilee, but they likely are not in this part. They're not in the Decapolis area very often, if at all, right? Because that's where the pagans live. But here they are, they, they, they cross over the sea, which they probably have never done. And here they are on the shore. Now what happens? The moment they get on the shore, something horrible, horrible, horrible happens. Look at this, chapter 5, verse 1. They went to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gadarenes. And when he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now it's interesting, right around Hippos, Along that cliff face, there are all these caves. They're still there to this day. So here's this man. He's been living in the caves. Likely he's from this town of Hippos. Because he was demon-possessed, they refused to let him in the city, so they kept throwing him out of the city. And therefore, the only place he had to go to live was these caves. Now, we are told about the man that, in verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could constrain him, not even with chains. Because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he pulled the chains apart and broke the shackles to pieces, and no one could subdue him. Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, here you are, a good Jew. And Jesus says, hey, let's go to the other side. And you're like, why? Jesus, I got a plan. Let's go to the other side. We're going across chaos, and in the middle of chaos, a storm whips up, and we're in the middle of chaos at the place of chaos. And so we wake Jesus up, and we say, Jesus, <laughs> you've got to save us. He stands up and goes, shh, 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 and there's calm in the place of chaos, physically. Now, the moment we land on the shore, Matthew's account says the man was naked. He runs out. Here is a naked Gentile. Who's demon-possessed? Who's screaming? 
night and day. He has cut marks all over himself. And now he's running towards you. <laughs> Do you know what this must have been like for, the, for those disciples? Do you know how chaotic this would have been? This is when you take Jesus and you go, here, we'll be in the boats. <laughs> you know, like, you do your thing, we'll go hide over here. You know, there's a naked Gentile running at us screaming with cuts all over himself. That's not good. Listen to what happens. Uh, verse 6, when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and knelt before him and he cried out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus asked the man his name in verse 9, and he answers, my name is Legion. You might know how many a legion is. A Roman legion is 6,000. Now, whether the demons were boasting, yes, our name is Legion, for we are many. Whether they were boasting, like there's like six of them, you know, and they're like, we're 6,000. Whether it was a boast or whether it was literal, what we know is that there was a lot, of, lot in him. Do you know what the man was experiencing? Chaos. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally, chaos. Uh, verse 10, and he begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the country. Now, I love what Matthew's account says here. They said, please do not send us to the abyss. Because Jesus had that authority. Just as Jesus has power over the physical realm, Jesus has power over the spiritual realm. And Jesus could have said, hey, go to the abyss. And instead, what do the demons do? They turn and they notice that there were these pigs up on the hill over at Hippos. Yeah, there's 2,000 pigs. And it says, could we, could we enter into the pigs? And Jesus says, okay, go. And the demons went into the pigs, and the pigs ran off the cliff and fell into the sea. Which is the entrance to where? The abyss. Isn't that hilarious? I think that's awesome. But isn't it sad that pigs refuse to put up with what we do? Here's a man full of demons, and he was willing to put up with it, but here are pigs who refuse to live that way. That's an interesting thought. And so the pig herders go over to Hippos, and they, they tell the story, and all these people come down to Jesus. And what we're told in Mark is that they start asking Jesus, who are you and why are you here? And you just ruined our whole economy. Yeah, all of our money, the whole town's economy were in these pigs, the pigs have now been destroyed. So we need you to leave. Now, a man has been set free. But they couldn't see that. And they couldn't care less. Because they were interested in the... So Jesus gets in the boat. And right before he leaves, the man says, could I, could I please come with you? Could, could, could I be your disciple? Could I, could I follow you? Could, I mean, you set me free. I had all these demons inside and I had all this turmoil and all this chaos. Could I follow? And Jesus says, no. For a reason. Now, it's interesting. It seems like all these encounters where Jesus did these miraculous events, Jesus would look at the person and say, don't tell anybody. 
Just keep it, keep it to yourself. However, this is one time, uh, when you look at verse 19 of chapter 5, Jesus actually tells the man to share what, what God had done. Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion, how he's had mercy upon you. In Hebrew, it's the word hesed, which we'll talk about at some point. Not today, some point. Verse 20, so Jesus departed and, or sorry, so the man departed and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. So, so get the flow of the story. Here is Jesus. He looks at his disciples and says, hey, let's go to the other side. Why? I have a purpose. I have a plan. So as they're making their way across the place of chaos, chaos begins to ensue. They wake up Jesus, who interestingly is sleeping in the middle of chaos. He's not perturbed by chaos. We should say something about our lives. If Jesus lives inside of us, don't you think? Do you know why you can have peace at all times and joy in every circumstance? You don't have to worry and fear? Because you've got Jesus. But they wake up Jesus and he goes, shh, 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 shh. Right? And he rebukes, he rebukes the winds and the waves and <clears throat> brings calm in the midst of chaos. The moment they get to the shore, there's more chaos. Here is a naked, wild-eyed, screaming, demon-possessed Gentile running the disciples. And Jesus brings calm and healing in the middle of emotional, mental, but primarily spiritual chaos. But the moment that takes place, the whole town says, we want you to leave. So Jesus gets in the boat and heads back. And he goes back to Capernaum. Now, if I was one of the disciples, I would have looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, talk about failure. Jesus, I don't know about you, but um, this was a rather chaotic day. We had chaos, and then we had chaos on top of chaos at the place of chaos. And then we met this Gentile. You know that naked Gentile guy? By the way, I love later on, it does say that when uh, after the demon... Demons were cast out of him. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I imagine it was Peter. He was like, please, here, have my coat. Put this on around you, please. Please. <clears throat> I'm just presuming. But he was clothed and in his right mind. And he wants to follow Jesus. And, and Jesus says, no, just go tell everybody about what God did. I don't know about you, but if, if I was a good disciple, I would look at this whole scene and just say, what a failure. What a waste. I mean, we went over there, and maybe if we were going to go over to the pagans, maybe if God did something miraculous with the pagans, maybe it would have been worth it. But one guy, you're telling me we went through chaos, experienced chaos, and met chaos for one? Isn't it amazing that Jesus values the ones. By the way, do you know who you are? You're a one. As far as I know, all of you are Gentiles. So aren't you glad? Jesus goes after the one Gentile. Now, most of us stop the story there. We just go, that was, a, that was a wonderful experience. Thank you, Jesus. Woo, healed the man. Praise the Lord. And we forget that the story continues. Anybody know how the story finishes? 
if you continue along and you follow the context through, if you turn over a couple pages to Mark chapter 8, uh, what we find out in, <clears throat> in uh, chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus has been in the, in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are these two towns on the Mediterranean coast. So they're like, if this is the Sea of Galilee, we're, we're talking about like over here, right? So here's Jesus. He's over at Tyre and Sidon, and he's, he's doing all his ministry stuff, and he makes his way back to the Galilee area. But interestingly, he doesn't just, he doesn't come through the normal way and come down following these roads and comes down to Capernaum. He actually kind of goes around this whole area and comes through the Decapolis. So now he's coming through this eastern part back toward the Sea of Galilee. Now as he's making his way through this Decapolis area, who has been going through the Decapolis telling everyone in the Decapolis the things of God? The crazy guy, who we don't know his name. I mean, it was legion, but it's not legion. Make sense? So here's this guy who has been healed, and now he's gone off and has been sharing with all, everyone in the Decapolis the things that God has done. Now remember, the first time that Jesus comes to the Decapolis, he ruined the economy. The people of Hippos come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you need to leave. Why? Hey, we don't like, we don't like you in our area. You've caused chaos in our, in our, in our economy. And so Jesus left. Now Jesus is going through the area of Decapolis and crowds are starting to follow him. Now everyone's hungry to listen to him. Now they're just desperate for truth. Listen to uh, chapter uh, 8, verse 1. In those days, crowds being very great with nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion that same word, by the way, that was used in chapter 5 of how God had compassion on that man. Jesus, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. Uh, earlier, back in chapter, I think it was chapter 6, uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Do you know who he fed the 5,000 to? Jews. It's right over there, just kind of west of Capernaum, right up on the hillside there. Uh, some may have said Bethsaida, but either way, it's on that northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And, and in either case, Jesus is feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Likely, there's between 15 and 20,000 people that Jesus is feeding with the five loaves, two fish. And who were they? Jews. Now he's going through the area of the Decapolis, and here's these huge crowds at the end of chapter 7 who've been following him. He's teaching them. And so, again, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 31, he comes to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. These massive crowds are following him for three days, and they're not eating. Now, it must have been a great sermon. Because we've seen how you guys get at lunchtime. <laughs> We're in the middle of a one-hour session, and you guys are starting looking at your watch going, mm-hmm, it's lunchtime. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if our session went for three whole days, and you're just like, just keep on teaching. We don't need the food. I mean, you're getting weaker, but you're like, I just. <laughs> so obviously, Jesus' teaching is better than ours, which would be a true statement in you either way, <laughs> just for clarity's sake. <laughs> so here he is, and, he, and he's, he's going through, and, and, and the, here's, here's all these Roman pagans 
who are following Jesus. And he feeds the 4,000 here in Mark chapter 8. Do you know who the 4,000 were? They weren't Jews. They were Romans. I don't know about you, but that changes the story in my mind. See, growing up, I thought when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, it was probably the same group, but it's not. He feeds the 5,000 Jews, and then he goes into the pagan world, and they're so desperate that they're willing to follow him for three days without eating just to listen to what he says. And he has compassion upon them, and he looks at the disciples and says, let's feed them. And he feeds the 4,000 plus women and children. But they were Romans. Here's the question. What changed in the Decapolis? What caused a group of people who not long before were looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, you need to leave our area because you've caused chaos and you've, you've ruined our economy and so it would be better that you just leave. And now they're saying, we don't even have to eat anymore. We, we just need to listen to you. Will you just keep speaking? Because we recognize you have something that we need. What changed? One man. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't it be interesting in our, our own lives that we begin to recognize that God is interested in the ones? He just doesn't do bulk. God is individual. And even if you are in bulk, he still deals with you individually. But he goes after individuals. And isn't it amazing that all it takes to turn a whole region upside down is one? What if God wanted to use you as the one? Maybe to flip it in a different way, here we are, we're going out and evangelizing and, and we're pouring our lives out for the people around us and a lot of times it's so easy to look at what's not happening and we get discouraged. Why? Well, there's just one person who showed up. Well, there's just one person that was saved. Well, it was just... Never discount the ones because all it takes is one. Do you see how understanding some of the context, the cultural stuff, the, the historical stuff, the, the flow of Scripture begins to take passages and brings life to them? Context. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I want to be that kind of a one. Lord, we know that you have power and authority over the physical that it could be going chaotic, and yet you can bring peace. And Lord, I love that the very next story is here is a guy who is dealing with emotional and mental and spiritual chaos, and you brought peace and calm in the middle of that. Which means, Lord, you don't just have power and authority over the physical, you have power and authority over the emotional. You have power and authority over the mental. You have power and authority over the spiritual. Lord, could it be that you want to bring peace in the middle of our chaos. Lord, what, what would it look like, Jesus, if in the middle of the chaos that's ensuing in our culture, 
with all the lawlessness and all the political debate and all the craziness and all the darkness and, and all the sin and all the rioting and all the... Jesus, could you bring peace and calm in the middle of that? Maybe closer to home, could you do that in my life? Lord, could you show us the value of the ones that you were willing to cross a lake? Hey, you were willing to expend and go after one, turn around and go back across the lake. Because that one man was significant. And even if he did change the world upside down, he was still significant. But Lord, what a crazy phenomenal illustration it is that here's a man whose world was turned upside down that you used to go into a region who, who had their hands over their ears and were gritting their teeth and not interested in listening. And because they saw what you did through your compassion and mercy through one man, allowed them to have a hunger and a desperation for you. Or would you do that in our culture again? Would you do that in this hour again? And Lord, as we depart and as we go off back to our homes in, in the coming days, could, could you take us and use us to turn the world upside down? Lord, could, could, could the world see what you did in and through us and the compassion and the mercy that you have in our lives and that may they just be hungry and thirsty to know you? Lord, let us not draw people's attention to us. May, when they look at us, their attention be drawn to you. Lord, we need a movement like this again in our world. Because we're in the middle of chaos. But you are the Prince of Peace. Beloved Jesus, thank you for what you're doing. Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.